Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word comes from, yet everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Everything from mountaintop beauty and deep forest to meth heads and extreme prejudice. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet to the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed downright unbelievable and tormenting historical atrocities. They have lived through everything from hauntings to cryptic creatures that show up and wreak havoc on their homesteads. The worst creature, though, may be man himself. I, being born and raised in these Appalachian Mountains, know that nothing is beyond a pale of belief, no matter how fantastic it sounds. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has a long legacy of unending tales and adventures. Come with me as I take you on a fantastic journey through these mountains, where things are not always as they seem. I guarantee you it won't be anything like you expected. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Season 2 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Welcome back, my good friends. First of all, uh, let me thank you for listening, and let me thank you for all your kind words and prayers and thoughts this week as, uh, you know, lost, uh, I guess you'd call him my stage manager, my friend Bubbles. Um, I've had cats all my life, and well, this one had a personality you wouldn't believe, but anyway, I really appreciate all your support and all your kind words this week, so thank you so much. There are few things sadder than being lonely. Sometimes folks are content to just have a pet as a companion and accompany them through life. Others need the companionship and love of a significant other. The question has always been, though, how does one go about meeting the right person? Nowadays, folks have the option of dating sites where they can go online and see pictures of others who wish to connect with their own potential loved one. Uh, years ago, folks relied on what is known as Lonely Hearts ads in newspapers and magazines. Now, one would just place themselves an ad and wait to hear if and when might be a response from somebody that wished to meet them as we've seen before. Either either way, leaves an opening for some underhanded activity, I'd say, to take place, and we've already seen that once in the Quiet Dale Bluebeard, Bluebeard episode. And as we all are aware of, through the years, there have been many crimes perpetrated on the innocent who seek nothing more than somebody to share their life with. It's going to take a right smart bit of untwisting to do on this one so come on in get settled and let me tell you just how horrible things got a few years back raymond fernandez was born in hawaii to a spanish immigrant parents in 1914 when ray was three his family moved to connecticut where his father worked intermittently at a series of low-paid jobs. He saw another disappointment in his son, who was often sickly and always frail. Young Ray lacked the macho his father wanted for the male child. 
frustrated, financially struggling and disappointed, the head of the household took up the bottle and imbibed heavily. He was a mean drunk who used excessive corporal punishment on little Ray. The punishments escalated into outright complete beatings delivered on a daily basis. Like many mistreated children, Ray developed a deep admiration for his abuser. He feared his father's wrath, yet admired the way he ruled as the, un, as the undisputed king of his dysfunctional, upside-down, twisted little castle. Ray felt that if he could only be strong enough or masculine enough to make his father proud, maybe things would be different. But the boy was struck in a small-framed, non-muscular body, so heck, his dad probably kept kept all of it beat off of him as far as I can tell, but he was always self-conscious about his looks. As an adolescent, he tried to get rid of this sense of emptiness by becoming a thief. Of course, he was caught and jailed at 15. Probably beats going home to face dear old dad, though, don't it? Well, he then decided to reverse the general tide of immigration. He would leave America for Spain, the land of his forefathers, and make a fresh start there. When they let him out, that was exactly what he did. Relatives in the old country were willing to take Ray in, and he settled down and grew to adulthood in Spain. That's about the time the Great Depression hit the U.S., and Ray's father believed he'd had himself a gut full of life in the land of opportunity as well. He wanted to reestablish a relationship with his son, so he wrote Ray and told him that he wanted to get to know him again. His mother and father soon joined him in Spain. They found that their son had become a well-liked young man. He had a calm, general manner and easily won friends, especially women. The thin, lanky physique that his father had often frowned on, insulted, and beat on ended up putting smiles on many young lasses' face. When Ray was about 20 years old, he married Encarnacion Robles and fathered a child with her. The financially troubled couple argued constantly, and Ray solved his marital problems as he previously solved his legal ones by leaving the country. I guess he thought that'll earn her. Almost as soon as he got back to America, his wife wrote him that their son was sick, and was very sick, in fact. Now, that scared him, so he took the first boat back to Spain. Back then, there wasn't any transcontinental flight, folks, you know. You went by boat, or you just didn't go. There, he found a country ripped apart by civil war, which had <clears throat> broken out just after he left. I'm sure he's stand, standing there wondering who hit John while he was gone, but nonetheless, he enlisted in Franco's army. After Franco's victory, Ray drifted from job to job. He was never a good breadwinner for his wife and son, but did the best he could. He was a gardener and a garbage collector and did other odd jobs. When World War II started, he didn't see war and think, oh no, not again. No, he sees an opportunity. In 1939, he traveled to Gibraltar and set up as an ice cream vendor, selling ice cream to British soldiers and tourists. That would have been the last thing in the world I'd have thought of doing. First (laughs) First thing being run, in fact, for me. But... There he was, scooping ice cream as bullets whizzed by his head and bombs landed just yards away from him. One day, a British man asked to speak privately with the ice cream seller. Maybe he recognized that the extroverted man who easily made friends could be of some use. 
he explained that he was from British intelligence and said, we can use you, provided you're capable of obeying orders and being discreet about it all. Ray assured the questioner that he was become a low-level spy with the Allies. Precisely what he did remains a mystery, but Ray appears to have demonstrated intelligence and courage to his spy masters. After the war, the ex-spy didn't want to go back to the dull life he'd had, you know, when he when he left it and went back with the war and started selling ice cream, and he felt trapped in it. So I guess he was above all that now. So he signed on with a ship for a, a life of high-spirited adventure, he thought, I guess. It's the pirate's way for him, I reckon. Instead, he had an accident that would drastically alter his life. A hatch cover fell off and bashed him across the head, cracking his skull open. The accident sheared off much of the thick black hair that he had been so proud of and left a gruesome scar on his head. After that, Ray suffered severe headaches and drastically changed his personality. All of the folks in the ship said that his general demeanor and conduct went out of the window after the crack on the head. Not some of them folks, but all of them. Where he had always been calm and controlled, he now walked around the perpetual pissed-off state, cocked and loaded like a shotgun with a hair trigger, ready to fly in the rage, and as we say in the mountains, at the drop of a hat, and he'd even let you drop the hat. The worst damage done was to his ego. With him being insecure as a child, he felt comfort in knowing that women found him attractive, and he knew that his thick, dark hair was part of his appeal. Being left partially bald and scarred just completely devastated the man. Now, I gotta say here that if I was ever that good looking, which is something I've never had to worry about, which is why I podcast and you don't see me on YouTube. I've had a bit of a temper change myself. If I'd have probably been in front of my hair, I'd probably been scraped off as well. But the ship he boarded sailed for the United States, but Ray's first stop was a jail cell because he had stolen some items from the boat. After a year behind bars, that <clears throat> then he went back to Brooklyn and set up with his sister. The kind-hearted woman gave him a place to stay, and in return, he gave her an unending air pipe of misery. Unable to find a job, he was perpetually mad and often verbally lashed out at her. Heck of a way to thank her for her trouble, huh? Ray finally, getting desperate, took up the practice of voodoo. After all, wasn't anything else working for him. His sister was about half scared by the odor of incense constantly burning in his room, as well as the moaning chants that he couldn't even she couldn't even understand that he had muttered while he knelt before a handmade altar. That'll be about the time he'd need to get to stepping, don't you think, folks? Yeah. He told his sister a fantastic story about learning voodoo spells and rites from a prisoner in Tallahassee with whom he had become friends. He also claimed that he'd learned to hypnotize people from a distance and could make women do anything he wanted just by concentrating on them. Yep, folks, he's waxing full whack-a-doodle at this point. His sister just let it all roll off, you know, like water off a duck's back, but I guess she knew the moon bat when she saw one, but... To her surprise, he did show her that he had a certain power over some of the ladies. He wrote to several members of various Lonely Hearts Club, and in 1947, he began writing to Jane Thompson. As Thompson's marriage had recently been dashed on the rocks of life, she was described herself as a plain Jane with glasses. 
she wasn't sure she could would be able to find another husband or and facing life alone really scared her the letter from ray impressed her and his tone of gentle caring i guess is what did it you know folks much like a snake he was excited by his romantic approach she was and she asked for a lock of or he asked for a lock of her hair she was delighted to send it to him she didn't know that the hair was for the voodoo spell though that ray believed would put women completely under his power apparently it worked because soon enough they arranged a meeting now wearing a toupee of thick black hair Ray was gratified to find poor Miss Thompson falling under his spell while he attributed his success with women to voodoo. Psychologists think it was more likely his firm belief in it that helped him have the confidence he needed to put the moves on him. Obviously, these psychologists don't live in the mountains and have not witnessed weird firsthand, as many of us have, or maybe they're just trying to make sense of it all. I don't know. Ray had an uncanny understanding of female needs and knew how to make them desiring. He gazed at them like he was completely enthralled by them, and his piercing dark eyes seemed to turn into mirrors that reflected an image of youth and beauty to women who were often insecure, aging, or maybe just a little bit homely. He knew not to give the impression that he was out for just a jolly good rogering, but gave the impression that he cared for him as a person. The couple traveled to Spain, on her dime, of course, and pretended to be married. Strangely enough, Ray took her straight over to meet his real wife. Now, that takes some gall, don't it? That after he convinced his own wife to be introduced as an old friend named Senora Robles. The guy's a regular Pied Piper, ain't he? I know. Why in Hades would his wife have anything to do with it? such an off-the-wall plan, you know, especially when it demeaned her to the core. Ray had a knack for convincing women that he was madly in love with them and appeared sincere when spouting outrageous lies. Like I said, he was a snake. The odd trio went out to restaurants, theaters, bullfights, and, you know, without Miss Thompson ever suspecting his old friend was really his wife and the mother of his child. Until, and there's that until that we're all familiar with, until the day when Ray and Miss Thompson had a loud, raucous argument in a hotel room. Apparently, somebody let the cat out of the bag as to what was really going on. From my humble point of view, maybe Ray's wife finally got a gut full of it and dropped a dime on him. But, of course, we know what's coming next, don't we? That's right, poor Miss Thompson was found dead the next morning of digitalis poisoning. Digitalis is used to treat congestive heart failure and heart rhythm problems. Police suspected her so-called husband but couldn't question him why well it was because ray took the first boat back to america after her body was even or before her body was even cold let alone found but now back in the u.s feeling as though he hadn't done enough he scammed jane thompson's mother after several hours he was able to draw a good simile of miss thompson's signature affixed to a document purporting to be her last will and testament leaving everything, of course, to Ray Fernandez. He sought out her mother, Ms. Wilson, and waved the document under her nose. 
his appearance of sincerity and conviction lured her into believing that it was all real. The document scared Miss Wilson. It said that the home she shared with her daughter now belonged to him. He assured her that he wasn't going to make her leave. After all, uh, she was a mother of the woman who had been so dear to him. Folks, I'll almost bet she'll be leaving all right. It'll be feet first. What do you think? Yeah, well, Ray said that the two of them could share the home. And he said, I shall see that you are not disturbed. Things for you will continue just as before. The poor old woman was grateful to be to the man who seemed to be so caring and considerate. Her daughter must have been lucky to have yeah, been in love and found such a kind and generous man, after all. While living there, Ray continued writing the Lonely Hearts Club members, stealing money, checks, jewelry, and whatever he could get his hands on. His victims weren't wealthy, so his takes were never high, but he was able to make a living through a sheer number of swindles. Kind of like when Walmart has a sale and beats the heck out of everybody else's price, they make their money by selling a whole bunch rather than one or two of whatever it is they're selling. Most of the victims, once they realized that they had been canned or conned, were too ashamed to go to the police. They would <clears throat> have had to reveal themselves as complete fools or maybe even worse. They'd have to tell the police that they were intimate with a man they weren't married to, and that, folks, was frowned on back then. <clears throat> on one of those hoodwinking hoedowns, he encountered a woman who was to change his life, a very lonely, sensuous, dark-haired, 300-pound nurse named Martha Beck. Now, the whole time Ray had been <clears throat> born and lived his life to that point, Martha Seabrook's story started when she was born in Milton, down in Florida, on May 6, 1920. She came into the world with a glandular problem that caused her to be obese and also caused her to mature completely through puberty by the age of 10 years old. Because of that, she was endlessly teased and picked on by her schoolmates. Her father thought a good deal of himself and decided to desert the family while that she was a toddler because he had other fish to fry, I suppose, and compound her problems. Her brother sexually assaulted her when she was 13 years old, and when she told her mother about it, Mom told her it was her fault and threw a good beating on her for causing it. Once she got out of high school, Martha was accepted by a school of nursing, and she graduated first in her class in 1942. She was determined that she was going to succeed. Now, however, she had difficulty getting employment despite her qualifications. She attributed this to her weight. Finally, an undertaker hired her to prepare corpses. I guess the dead don't care how much somebody weighs. The job was a bitter disappointment. She had honed her skills in nursing school and knew that she could give good care to patients, yet she could only give the good jobs of care to the persons who didn't need it. And the poor lonely woman escaped the disappointment and failure of her life by reading true romance magazines. After eight months of painting faces, stuffing cotton and embalming, she heard there was a nurse shortage in California and decided to take her chances. Shortly after her arrival in the Sunshine State, she got a job at a hospital and things started looking up. 
Martha started to partially live out the fantasies of romance that she had nurtured for so long. She had an affair with a bus driver. Soon, a 20-something nurse found herself pregnant and demanded her boyfriend marry her. Apparently, that scared the heck out of him because he ran off and then attempted suicide by throwing himself off the Golden Gate Bridge and into the Pacific Ocean. And, believe it or not, he survived and rescuers fished him out and she never saw him again. That feat ought to be noted in the Guinness Book of World Records because most people that jump off that thing don't make it. But she tried unsuccessfully to find him, but apparently he was steeped in the art of camouflage and disguise because she never did. Then the poor woman just snapped under the stress of an unwed pregnancy and was a complete disgrace back then, and she was hospitalized for acting like a moon bat. It took her a few days to recover from what they deemed a bad case of the nerves. She decided that the trip to California was a bust and moved to Pensacola, Florida, where she struck a ring on her finger and told everybody that she was a wife of a soldier away at war. Around the time of her baby's birth uh, and realizing that the soldier father that she'd manufactured wasn't going to ever show up, she sent herself a phony telegram saying that her husband had been killed in action, playing it all out in the, to the very end. She even made the papers with that story and garnered herself a little pity from the locals. The new mother and now a war widow found herself a boyfriend by the name of Alfred Beck. Oddly, like the father of her child, he was a bus driver too. The two soon married, and but uh, he divorced Martha within a year when she was pregnant with her second child. I guess she knows how to pick them. Although her personal life was in the can again, Martha's career took a turn for the better. The Pensacola Crippled Children's Home hired her, and she did so well she was promoted to superintendent. She was making something of herself as a nurse despite all the bad luck she'd had. Maybe it was her on-the-job success that encouraged her to take another chance at love. She joined Mother Deneen's family club for lonely hearts and received a letter from you guessed it ray fernandez she took a liking to him right off the bat it won't like uh, long before it all fell in the toilet in florida again after corresponding for a while they agreed to meet in florida when martha saw the thin black-haired gentleman who had written her such flowery letters she fell head over heels she thought he resembled her idol, Charles Boyer. Too bad for her that he didn't look like the bus driver or something, I guess. <laughs> she hated, and uh, you'll, I, guess, I guess you'll see that why later. But surprisingly, Ray, accustomed to deceiving women, only to bilk him out of every penny that he could wring out of them, was smitten as well. The couple spent many steamy hours in hotel rooms getting uh, to each other you know, like newlyweds. Ray soon realized Martha didn't have any bilkable money and no property either. After two days of all this bliss, he wanted to go back to a woman who well, maybe could bilk something out of. He made an excuse to Martha and headed back to New York. From there, he wrote Martha a Dear Martha letter. Of course, that devastated her, but it was only the beginning of her troubles. Word about her hotel trysts had got back to the board of Pensacola Crippled Children's Home, which wasn't good for her as they issued her a pink slip and sent her packing. A 
apparently people weren't supposed to have any fun at all back then. Now, unemployed, lost, and saddled up with a care of two little children, the now pissed off and hurt woman was determined that the wily little Ray Fernandez would be her salvation, whether he liked it or not. So she packed her bags, took her kids, and headed for Ray's house. Ray's reaction to these uninvited, unannounced visitors was, what else? To take them in. Why, you ask? Well, Ray was used to loving and leaving women after fleecing them. They were suckers, but not this woman. This was a switch. The demanding, take-no-nonsense Martha had a will strong as his. Her brashness roused deep emotions in him, maybe even some respect. Folks, you ain't heard nothing yet. Stick around. You're listening to Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend with Larry Bentley, and I'll be right back. Ray soon come to the conclusion that the apartment they shared with Jane Thompson's mother was just too blame crowded. He told her if she were going to stay with him, the kids had to go. Martha didn't want to be an out-of-work single mother, but she didn't want to lose Ray either because with him she was living the love that she'd read about in the romance magazines. So she packed the kids up and shipped them back to her relatives in Florida, but not before dropping them off at the Salvation Army until they could get rides down there. Couldn't get them out of there fast enough, huh? Not long after that, Ms. Wilson was, well, she was ejected from the house, too. I wonder if she ever knew how lucky she was not to leave on a covered gurney. But to Ray's surprise, Martha wasn't upset when he told her he was a gigolo swindling women through the Lonely Hearts Clubs. She instead wanted to join him in the whole mess. I guess to her it beat being left high and dry again. They had a plan. She would be deceiving women into thinking that they had this wonderful entrancing man while she would know he was really hers. Martha would pose as Ray's sister when they met their victims. The first was a Pennsylvania school teacher named Esther Hen. This poor woman exchanged several letters with Ray and was impressed by the eloquence and interest and concern in his letters. But the woman was convinced that she'd found true love and her happily ever after would be coming up. The skinny little shyster visited Miss Hen with his sister in tow. They soon, or Ray soon prepared, <clears throat> proposed marriage and the poor woman accepted. She soon found herself in a strange honeymoon. Every night her husband retired to his own bedroom while the bride shared sleeping quarters with her sister-in-law. Well, once she had about enough of that, and objected to it, a bizarre argument broke out. That's when Martha became intimidating and wasn't hard to, given that there was a considerable size difference between the two women. Anyway, the three returned to New York. The wife discovered their finances had been bled dry and was too scared to confront Ray or Martha. Instead, she just gathered her stuff and left and that was probably lucky for her. They were now duping the gullible women in mock marriages and then extricating every ounce of anything worth having from them. But that wasn't enough. It never is with these type people, folks. 
they went out about making life so completely unbearable that the dupes were glad to get ri- <clears throat> get out of their lives and get them out of their lives. Then they were too embarrassed to do anything about it, and they got away with it all for over two years. In 1948, they finally picked the wrong one, a middle-aged widow named Myrtle Young of Green Forest, Arkansas. She hoped life wasn't passing her by when she started exchanging letters from with the dashing romantic Ray Fernandez. Maybe now she had a new lease on life. Of course, his marriage proposal was eagerly accepted, so in August, she traveled to Cook County, Illinois, where she and her Romeo tied the knot. Myrtle, being a woman who was no pushover, was outraged when her sister-in-law waddled into the bedroom and insisted on sharing the honeymoon bed by crawling right between the new husband and wife. Myrtle didn't take that too well, and when she protested, she did it rather loudly and wasn't about to stop. Finally, Martha pounced on her and force-fed the woman a heavy dose of barbiturates. Then she and Ray dragged a half-comatose woman out and put her on a bus headed for Little Rock, Arkansas. When the bus pulled into the depot, those around her realized Myrtle wasn't just sleeping and rushed her to the hospital where she, well, promptly died. Lucky for Ray and Martha, she died before she was able to share with the police the story of her strange honeymoon and forced doping. As we often see in these types of associations, although nothing was ever proven about the death of Jane Thompson, it's likely that Ray had murdered before he met Martha. There are no reports of Martha ever being violent in any way before her association with Ray, but by herself she was pitiful. With him she was somebody. Maybe these that somebody was always harbored inside her somewhere where the rage was always at. Who the heck knows, anyway? That's too much to think about, ain't it? Makes my head hurt. Did any of that stop him from doing anything else? Well, we all know the answer to that, don't we? Most of these criminals uh, can't stop, won't stop, and uh, simply, on the other hand, can't even do enough to start with. But now using the alias Charles Martin, probably because neither he or Martha knew how much the cops knew about what they did to poor Myrtle, Ray began writing to a 66-year-old in Albany named Janet Fay. Miss Fay knew that she was long past her prime, where she would be regarded as being attractive, but she still hoped for somebody to share her life with. She lived in a large apartment. It was too big for one person and made her feel that much more alone. She was a deeply religious Roman Catholic who faithfully attended Mass. Miss Fay was pleased to find that the eloquent and refined Charles Martin fellow shared her beliefs. All of a sudden, he's ditched the voodoo and now he's a Catholic. But his letters were filled with references of God, Jesus, and the church. She was thrilled to death when she he asked for a lock of her hair. Oh, boy. They arranged to meet in December of 1948. Ray altered his appearance to make him look older. Of course he did. That's what snakes do. He put a white streaks in his hair. I guess that was the divot that he wore on his head. And he wore makeup to deepen crow's feet around his eyes. In late December, Mr. Martin and his sister Martha, of course, traveled to Albany to meet Miss Faye. 
the refined gentleman showed up on Miss Faye's doorstep carrying a bouquet of flowers as his sister walked up behind him. They spent much of their time sharing their similar religious convictions and discussing Bible verses that they both found fascinating. As the new year of 1949 rolled around, Miss Faye found herself entranced by this smooth-talking and deeply Christian man. So smitten was she that she agreed to give all her cash, bonds, and jewelry to the man she thought of as her husband-to-be. Wow. Mr. Martin's helpful sister had no trouble packing it all in the trunk and had what had been the property of the late Myrtle Young, by the way. Well, I'll keep something if you're not going to use it, I guess. But Miss Faye anticipated a romantic elopement when she crawled into her car and set off with her fiancé and future sister-in-law for the small town of Valley Stream, New York. They rented a little apartment using Miss Faye's money, of course, then settled into their new home. Miss Faye spoke of writing to her stepdaughter. Martha jumped in and scolded the woman, warning her not to do that. Then, when night fell, Martha woke up in the middle of the night and to find somebody in bed. She got up and found Miss, or found nobody in bed, that was, and found Miss Faye standing outside the bathroom door without so much as a piece of lint on her body for clothing, waiting for Ray, who was finishing the bathroom, of course, presumably so nature could take its course on the honeymoon night. Martha snapped, and the monster grabbed the claw hammer and caved in Mrs. Faye's head with it. Believe it or not, the poor woman didn't die. As blood poured from the, her head, Ray pounced on her and strangled her with his own <clears throat> scarf, and, or with her own scarf, and of course, until her false teeth popped out of her mouth and landed on the floor, and she stopped breathing. Yes, folks, literally, her false teeth popped out and bounced on the floor. Unfazed by it all, Martha jerked up what was left of the poor woman and chunked her into the closet, then stomped her false teeth and small, into small enough crumbs to flush them down the toilet while Ray sat there laughing at her. Then they sat around discussing ways to get rid of the body. Ray mentioned his sister in Astoria, Astoria, I mean, lived in a home with a big basement. Myrtle Young's trunk wasn't big enough to hold her, though. Uh, so they went out and bought a new one. Martha, who was still seething at the little woman, threw <clears throat> her part of the way in, then stomped Miss Faye's body the rest of the way into the new trunk. And then they headed for Ray's sister's house. Yes, folks, by all accounts, his real sister's house, not just the fake one. But Ray, now being hardened to murder, was able to keep a straight face and calm demeanor as he asked his sister could they leave the trunk in the cellar for a little while. Certainly, his sister said. The January weather was freezing, so Martha figured the body would keep for a few days before giving off a death funk. Ray and Martha rented a house in Queens that had a cellar and went back to grab the trunk from the, his sister's house. Now the two of them took turns beating out a hole in the basement floor buried Miss Faye in the hole they dug under the cement, and then they filled it back over with new cement. When the cement hardened after a few days, the couple went to the real estate agent to say that they didn't want the house after all. It looks like there's a crack in the basement floor, I guess. Might be a, might be a leak coming in through there. But 
Martha wanted Miss Fay's property from American Express, but knew it might set off alarms if they did, did it themselves. She believed that she could persuade Janet's stepdaughter to help them. Thus, she typed the following letter and mailed it to the stepdaughter, Mary Spencer, you know, because they want to rig, ring every cent they can out of the situation that they can possibly get. She said, Dear Mary, I am all excited and having the time of my life. I never felt so happy before. I soon will be Mrs. Martin and go to Florida. Mary, I am about to ask you a great favor. I would like you to call on the American Express Agency and have my trunk and boxes that I have there sent to me. The address is on the various stickers, and I am enclosing in the letter. I would like to sort out my things before I leave for Florida. I am so happy and contented, for Charles is so good and nice to me, and always his, and also his family. They have done everything to make me feel comfortable and at home. I will close with my best wishes for your, for you both, and love and kisses for your children. I really do miss you all, but I am sure that my prayers are granted and to me by sending me this wonderful man. God bless you, Janet J. Fay. Every, crim- every criminal, folks, has to go too far. And Miss Spencer immediately spotted this letter for a phony. She knew her stepmother couldn't type, and the formal signature wasn't even close to anything that she'd ever seen before. That's when she called the police and told them her suspicions. In the meantime, without a care in the world, Ray and Martha traveled to Grand Rapids, Michigan, so he could meet a 41-year-old Delphine Downing, a widow. He was courting through the Lonely Hearts <clears throat> Club the whole time he was marrying Miss Faye. Ray and Martha had to, got so smooth at their scheme that they already had the next one lined up before they <laughs> were done with the current one. Miss Downing had lost her husband in the war, and she wanted to remarry and feared that the eligible man wouldn't be interested and ready for to a ready-made family and would run <clears throat> when they learned of little Raynell, her daughter. Uh, she was pleased Ray hadn't lost interest, when she told him that she was the mother of a toddler, Delphine introduced the pair to her almost two-year-old daughter, Raynell, and allowed brother and sister to stay in her home so she could, and or she and Ray could become better acquainted. Ray was entranced by little Raynell and spent time playing with her. The debonair Latin, who courted her in so much thoughtful, romantic manner, equally entranced the child's mother along with the kid. The evening of Delphine, or one evening at Delphine's home, Ray was relaxing and reading a newspaper, probably looking at the Lonely Hearts section for another pigeon. He had kicked back and took his shoes off and lit a Cuban cigar and took the divot off his head and let it breathe. Suddenly the door opened. A stunned Delphine downing yelled, My God, you're bald. Upset by the look of disappointment on her face, Ray said, Look, honey, you don't have to act this way because I cover a bald patch. Heck, it's no crime, Delphi. She had <laughs> she had thought <clears throat> he was suave, handsome, young, and well, she eased herself back away from him as he walked toward her. Don't touch me, you imposter, she said, for you're old, old. And he tried to sweet talk her, but she ordered both of him, him and his sister to leave immediately. The grave grabbed for her, but 
She struggled out of his grasp, turned around, and bounced off a 300-pound Martha who was coming to see what the heck was going on. Now, Ray took a pistol out of his jacket pocket and shot Delphine in the head as she hit the floor after ricocheting off Martha. Now, Ray watched her last breath leave her body. His mind wasn't on what he'd just done, but on the insults she had just hurled at him. Uh, Martha said, <clears throat> she saw me without the toupee, and, or he told Martha that she saw me without the toupee and said I was old. She didn't want me. She said we had to leave tonight. Martha, you don't think I'm old or ugly, do you? Martha stepped over the body and took him in her arms and held his squirrely little head against her chest and gave him the reassurance she, he craved. Of course, he was still attractive, still youthful. As we all know, things like this don't happen in front of a two-year-old without the two-year-old getting upset. Soon the baby's cry started to disturb this loving little scene, and Martha told Ray that he, they should have to take care of the little kid just like they had Janet Faye. Uh, he would dig a hole in the cellar big enough for mother and child, and the former nurse and mother of two filled the bathtub with water. She then took little Rennell into the bathroom, telling her that she was going to give her a bath. Martha then held the child's head underwater and drowned her. After breaking through the thin layer of the cement in the basement floor with his shovel, Ray dug out a little pit. Delphine was crammed and stomped into place and by Martha along with her baby, and it was covered over with cement, just like before. Then... The deadly couple capped off the night with a trip to the theater to take in a movie where they enjoyed sodas and popcorn along with the show. They returned home, tired and ready to sleep. Ray and Martha didn't have time to settle into bed before they heard a knock on the door. Ray, now being as confident as ever that they'd never be caught, didn't even look out the window and when he answered it. Police officers were standing on the front porch invited themselves in. What were they there for? Ray wondered. Now, they, they couldn't possibly know that what had happened to Delphine and Raynell, could they? You, Renee, you Ray Fernandez? A policeman asked. You never know <clears throat> a Miss Janet Fay? Ray was too scared to answer. Martha saw the police and made threats, but wasn't able to act on them before being pounced on them by four or five of them and slapped in the handcuffs. Being that the two were actually guilty about something, they searched in the house and, or they searched the house and found the bodies of mother and infant buried in the cellar. It wasn't long before the story of the Lonely Hearts killers made headlines across the nation. While only these three murders would be officially established as theirs, there were persistent rumors that they had done away with other pigeons, as they called them. Some estimates say that they killed as many as twelve people, but. Uh, both murderers seemed less concerned with the possible murder charge than their reputation. Uh, Ray told investigators, I'm no average killer. I have a way with women and power over them. Martha was distraught by terms like obese ogress, which was tagged in the newspapers as her name. I'm still a human being, she protested, feeling every blow inside, even though I have the ability to hide my feelings and laugh. But that doesn't say... Uh, my heart isn't breaking in the insults and humiliation of being talked about this way because I am hurt. When they were in custody, 
A dispute arose between Michigan and New York as to which state would try. Michigan had no death penalty, and while New York was worried out their electric chair, Roger McMahon, a district attorney of Michigan's Kent County, used their fear of New York's death penalty to persuade them to sing to the tune of the 73-page confession, which included every giving away every location of Janet Faye's body, and uh, which they promptly went and dug up. He promised that they wouldn't be extradited to New York if they come clean. Mr. McMahon lied, though. They were stunned when Michigan handed them directly over to New York so they could face the ultimate penalty for the murder of Janet Faye. They went on trial in the middle of 1949's simmering heat wave. The weather didn't keep intrigued spectators from crowding into the courtroom where they sat cheek to jowl, wiping sweat off their foreheads and fanning themselves while listening to testimony about pure deviance, mayhem, and murder. Judge Ferdinand Picora heard the case. He was reputed to be a no-nonsense jurist who didn't allow a case to be bogged down in irrelevant details. Nassau County District Attorney Edward Robinson, Jr. prosecuted him. He put a variety of witnesses on the stand, including the medical examiner who autopsied Janet Fay, detectives and forensic experts, and relatives and friends of the victim. Herbert Rosenberg defended both Martha and Ray. He called Ray to the stand on July 11, 1949. He said that he had nothing to do with Miss Fay's death. He admitted confessing to, to it when questioned by police in Michigan, but claimed he was only telling them what they wanted to hear and taking the blame so his love, lady love could go free. My statements were made for the purpose of helping Martha, he testified. Apparently, the prospect of electrocution had led him to try to throw Martha directly under the bus by this time. But in the end, the Lonely Hearts case went to the jury on August 18, 1949. They began deliberating at 9.45 p.m. and a verdict by 8.30 a.m. the next morning. Both defendants were convicted of first-degree murder. The jury didn't recommend any mercy at all. On August 22nd, Judge Pecora sentenced Ray Fernandez and Martha Beck to death in the overworked electric chair. He probably should have published it in the Lonely Hearts ads so they both could read it for themselves, I guess. While awaiting execution, Martha wrote poetry. On the last day of her life, Martha set a goal for herself and failed miserably at keeping it. She was tired of hearing people ridicule her as a glutton, so she was going to show them all she possessed self-control by not overdoing her last meal. Then she figured, what the heck, and asked for a double order of everything. Wolfing down heaping helpings of salad, fried potatoes, and fried chicken. Unlike Ray, she showed a certain amount of courage since she walked straight to the electric chair on her own. Ray, on the other hand, collapsed on the floor outside the death chamber. In keeping with the tradition of executing the more distraught prisoner first, guards picked him up and dragged him unconscious into the electric, er, electric chair and strapped him down ahead of Martha. Once they strapped him in, they used smelling salts to revive him so that he could read him a death warrant. So they were both executed at Sing Sing on March 8, 1951. And that was the end of them.
But I hope you got something out of our story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast. And don't forget to follow us, please. Please join us on Facebook group, Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast, where we discuss everything Appalachian or whatever else you'd like to talk about. I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian Murder Mystery or Legend, and I'll see you then. <laughs>